Hi, I'm Mrs. Econoweiser, and you're about to listen to the first FIRE Meetup Amsterdam with the godfather of FIRE, J.L. Collins. That's FIRE, as in financial independence, retire early. J.L. Collins is the author of The Simple Path to Wealth and the blog jlcollinsnh.com. JL has inspired thousands to spend less than they earn, invest a surplus and avoid debt. His writing certainly changed my life for the better. You can follow my blog at econowiser.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at Econowiser and stay tuned for the recording of the second FIRE Meetup Amsterdam with JL Collins. Have fun listening! Okay, FIRE friends, the man of the Yes, his lovely wife, Jay. She's going to actually answer all the questions. So, Jim, we're going to start off with a round of questions and hopefully some beautiful answers. Jim is not an expert on the Dutch tax system, but he's going to try. You know, he always has an opinion, obviously, and he's going to he's going to try and express his opinion as uh, clearly as possible. Um, so after, you know, we have a couple of questions and after that, so for the first half hour, I'll ask a couple of questions and uh, lots of you have um, uh, uh, had requests for the questions. So they're, they're put together by the fire, Dutch fire community. Um, and after that, uh, you all have an answer, you all have the opportunity to ask J L, Jim, uh, Jim a couple of questions. And at about 4.30ish, we'll uh, um, uh, stop the, uh, the Q&A session and then we can just mingle and uh, get to know each other, this will be better. Does that sound good? Yes. Okay, great. Let's get started. Let's get started. <laughs> On your throne. And film? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's $5 for you. <laughs> <laughs> euros, euros. Euros. Um, of course. Um, the Dutch Fire communi community requested um, uh, a recording, so I'm recording this by phone. I hope um, the, uh, the, the sound is okay, but uh, we'll see. I don't have any professional equipment, but uh, that won't spoil the fun, I hope. We'll no. still have fun, is whether it, we have uh, a recording or not. Yeah. Is it okay for people to take pictures? Of course. Of course yeah. it is. Yeah. Is there anybody in the audience who doesn't want that picture taken? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily you're not in the audience then. <laughs> but you can take pictures of each other. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, Jim, uh, which personal decision you made has had the biggest impact on your path to fire? Wow. So that's kind of a t <laughs> that's kind of a tough question and and a little more complex than it you might think to begin with. Mm -hmm. Uh, because I actually uh, reached fire before I was an indexer. And I don't know if everybody here is familiar with my work and my writing and my investing philosophy, but uh, if you are, you know that I'm a, I'm a avid uh, believer in indexing. But I actually, I, I achieved financial independence picking stocks and picking active managers. And... Um, and, that, and that's, that's kind of an important point in the sense that, that when I advocate indexing as the better approach, it's not as if those approaches can't work or that they can't get you there because they, in fact, got me there. It's just indexing is more powerful, it's easier, 
if, if I didn't found it sooner, if I'd embraced it sooner, I would have achieved the goal sooner. Um, so I'm not sure if that actually answered the question, but, but uh, I wish I'd found indexing sooner just because the path would have been faster and easier. But I think that's one of the things that makes it hard for people who are stock pickers or, or believe in actively managed funds to accept indexing. It was one of the things that made it hard for me is it's not like that's a bad thing and will never work. It's like that works at this level, but indexing works at this level. Does that make sense? I think it does. Yes, thank you. Which questions uh, should somebody aspiring fire, like all of us, uh, ask themselves at the start of and throughout their journey towards fire? Well, I, you know, fire, the, the journey to fire, when I, for me, it was kind of easy because it just fit my personality style. It was what I, I when I was doing it, there was no path. I mean, there was, when I started, there was no internet. I didn't know anybody else out there doing what I was doing. I didn't have a concept, by the way, of financial independence. I had come across the idea of, of FU money in a novel I'd read. And so I knew about that, and I knew I wanted the freedom that that provided. Um, but in fact, when I achieved financial independence, I, I was taking, I, I always liked working, and, but I didn't like working all the time. So I take sabbaticals, and I was I was in the middle of a five-year one at, at one point, and and Jane was not working at this particular junction. And as I did at the end of every year, I was totaling up, you know, our investments and where we were. And you know, we hadn't had any income coming in for three years, and I noticed something remarkable, that, which was that we had more money than we had the year before. <laughs> and we had more money than the year before that. And, and yet we were living the same lifestyle and spending, and we never had a lavish lifestyle, don't misunderstand. But, but, and I knew something remarkable had happened, but I didn't have a name for it because I'd never heard this term financial independence. And embarrassingly, I didn't, no worries, I didn't, uh, I, I wasn't able to, to recognize the implications of that, the implication being that I never had to work again. Um, so I went back to work, but I, but I knew something <laughs> remarkable had happened. So I think, the, I think now for people who know that the path exists, it's, it's an incredibly simple path, but it's not easy. It, it means making some very definitive choices in your life that are really around how you want to spend your money. So uh, there was a woman who came to one of our Chautauquas, which are these retreats that we do, and, and she came as what we call a dragged-along spouse. Her, her husband was really into it, and, and she said to me at one point, she said, you know, Jim, I, you know, I, I want to embrace this, but in my family when I grew up, we just spent money. That's what we did. You know, this just seems so wrong. And I said, well, you're still spending money. You're just... You know, instead of buying clothes or a car or a fancier house, you're buying your freedom. You're still spending your money. You're still buying something. And, of course, you buy your freedom by buying investments. And it's not up to me or anybody else to tell you how to spend your money. It's your money. You can spend it however you want. Uh, but for me, the choice is always easy. You know, Fancier car or my freedom? That's a no-brainer. And that's not deprivation for me. I mean, I know some people 
say, well, it feels like deprivation. Well, it depends on how you want to spend your money. Um, you know, do you want a fancier car or a simpler car and a fancier wardrobe? Or do you want a simpler car and a simpler wardrobe or a fancier house? I mean, those are all decisions everybody makes all the time. And this is just, I think, being aware that there's something else you can spend your money on, and that's freedom. Beautiful. Thank you. Uh, you advised your daughter to keep putting her money in the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund, VTSAX. This is the fund she already owns and she should just keep adding to it. In which cases or trends would you advise her differently or change course? What signals uh -huh. should she look for, should she look out for, and what would you advise her to be uh, the crossover point into something else? I know we can't prepare for Black Swan events and flexibility is key. Right, right, right. <laughs> so, uh, BTS, so I, I, I was talking to, I forget, I've talked to several of you before we began, and. And in one of those conversations, um, we're talking about how my book is very U.S.-centric because I'm an American and I never dreamed that I would I would have a Dutch readership <laughs> or or the international readership I have. It just never occurred to me. And uh, so it's what I write. The way I write is very U.S.-centric because that's what I know. And VTSAX is the total U.S. stock market. And that's what I advocate uh, investing in in the book. And that's what I have my daughter invested in. Of course, I wrote, started writing all of this for my daughter. That's where all of my investments are. Um, one of the conversations I have with my daughter is that at some point she's going to want to switch into a world fund. And I'm not sure when that is because right now the U.S. is far and away the dominant economy in the world and has been since World War II. But if you, if you go back to World War II, and in fact, you go back to shortly before World War II ended, um, the world leaders got together in New Hampshire, uh, where we used to live, at the Mount Washington Hotel, where we have stayed and where our daughter actually once worked, uh, which is in a town called Bretton Woods, and they came up with the Bretton Woods Agreement which was basically what the world order was going to be after World War II. And it put the U.S. and the U.S. currency at, at the center of the world because coming out of World War II, we were the, outside of Pearl Harbor, which was bombed by the Japanese early in the war. The U.S. was the only participant in that war that didn't have it fought on its soil. And so we were the only country that wasn't bombed into rubble regardless of which side of the war you were on. So at the end of World War II, the economy, the world economy was a certain size and the U.S. just completely dominated it by 90%, some huge percentage, because everybody else was literally in rubble. But of course, the rest of the world didn't stay in rubble and as Europe and Asia and rebuilt and grew, the whole, the pie got bigger and bigger. And the U.S. portion of that pie got smaller and smaller, not as some Americans are afraid because things, something's bad in America or, or something's wrong. Things are still robust in America. It's just that things are going so well and so right in the rest of the world. And that's a good thing for everybody. Uh, I see that trend continuing. And right now, the U.S. accounts for maybe 50% of the world economy as opposed to 90% 75 years ago.
I see that percentage getting smaller, but it'll be a smaller piece of a bigger and bigger pie. But at some point, um, I think she'll want to own the whole world. And in fact, uh, if I were living anywhere other than the U.S., I would already be buying the whole world. Because I'm in the U.S., I'm very attuned to the U.S. market and to what's going on in that country. And I pay very close attention to it in a way that I probably wouldn't if I was Dutch or German or Japanese or whatever. Um, and it's certainly been the, the best place to be for a while. But at some point, that'll shift. And again, not, as I say to my American friends who are concerned, not because things are getting bad in the U.S. It'll actually be good for the U.S., but it's just the rest of the world is becoming stronger and stronger and more and more robust. So I tell Jessica, um, probably not going to be a change in my lifetime because I'm an old, old guy, but at some point in her lifetime, she's probably going to want to make that shift. And again, if I were uh, European, I would probably already uh, be doing a world kind of fund. Did you give so. her any, any guidelines, any sort of rules to abide by when making that shift? You know, it's, it's tough because it's such a, um, you can never predict the future. No. And, you know, I'm, I'm assuming, um, you know, the world since World War II has gotten, there's a wonderful book out, um, uh, some of you may have already read it, it was written by a Swedish guy uh, called Factfulness. And if you haven't read it, it's, it's worth finding. Um, he looks at the actual data of the conditions in the world, everything from uh, uh, child mortality to lifespans to economic development in the world. No question is becoming a better and better place and has done for quite some time. Um, and so I'm anticipating that trend continuing. Now, if some horrible World War happens. I mean, there you know, you never know what can derail it. But, but you know, so I, she's got a, she's she's got a. I guess suppose pay attention to those things. But I see it as being not an abrupt change, but a gradual change. Mm. And at some point, so it's not something that she'll have to do exactly at the right moment, but more something to be aware of that, you know, as you see, assuming that the future is is a good one. As you see, the world economy is getting better and, and the rest of the world prospering more and more, that at some point you'll just flip the switch and move. And, right. and as I said, you could do it now and, and, not, and I think it would be a sound decision. Uh, I just personally think the U.S. is going to be a little stronger place to be for the next decade or two. Right. But I, but I, you know, I can't see the future, so that's just my guess. Yeah. Okay, yeah. thank you. Um, re well, talking about uh, not being able to, to, to see and look into the future recently, Vanguard, Vanguard <laughs> <laughs> uh, has indicated, we all love Vanguard, that they, well, this one guy at Vanguard, expect returns for the stock, uh, stock market over the next decade to be lower compared mm. to the past couple of decades, about 5% annualized return instead of 8 What is your view on this statement? And would you adjust your investment strategy if the stock market returns would drop considerably? Wow. So um, Jack Bogle is uh, is 
there, there are many people who ascribe to this belief, right? Uh, including some people for whom I have a very profound respect. Jack Bogle, who passed away earlier this year, is one of them. And uh, I mean, there are few few people that I have a higher regard for than Jack Bogle. He is the guy. In case anybody doesn't know, who created the idea of index funds. He's the founder of Vanguard, which is the only investment firm that I recommend. And he's on record as saying this, and it's an area where he and I disagree. I'm not saying he's wrong, I'm saying I don't know. And he doesn't know either because nobody can know the future. And I started hearing this about three years ago, and the stock market has, has done nothing but skyrocket for the last three years. So already, if you go back to that three years as the beginning and you look at that 10-year period, they're already deeply in the hole on that prediction. Right. Uh, somebody once said that the stock market will do exactly what it has to do to embarrass the most people <laughs> at any given time. And so whenever you start saying the stock market is going to do this, there's a very good chance the stock market is going to do the opposite. So I have no idea if we're in for a decade of lower returns. I understand the arguments behind it and they are certainly reasonable and logical. Uh, but on the other hand, we may be on the, on the brink of, of a whole new wave of technological innovation, and it might be the next 10 years of the stock market will be the biggest returns in history. I'm not predicting that. I don't know. You know, will they be lower for the next 10 years? Yeah. Will they be higher? Will they be about the, I just, and nobody can know. And so I guess that brings me to answering the second part, yeah. which, no, my, my investment strategy is the same regardless. Okay. Thank you. Uh, the Dutch have to deal with a different kind of income and wealth system. Uh, I ex sort of explained uh, Jim uh, our system, and he was uh, shocked at how much uh, well, how and, much tax we have to pay. And, and, yeah. and there were I've had several conversations with Dutch yeah. friends over the last week and a half. Yeah. And, yeah. I. I so yeah, we have a different. My heart goes out to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Poor On the other hand, you don't have to worry about healthcare in the way we do. That's so. true. That's true. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Yeah. yeah. So the wealth uh, tax system compared to uh, Americans, uh, we're worse off. What course of action would you advise the Dutch on their way to fire while dealing with things like um, this wealth tax? Well, that's uh, that's a hard question for yeah. me because I. I I have such a superficial understanding of it to begin with. Mm -hmm. uh, so I would say, broadly speaking, that whatever environment, whatever political environment you're in, whatever country you're in, uh, whether it's the Netherlands or the U.S. or someplace else, um, if you're trying to accumulate wealth, it behooves you to understand the laws and the regulations of and the tax structure of that country, and then negotiate them as best you can. The little bit of understanding I have of, of the Dutch system, um, in terms of build, building wealth, the cards seem to be stacked against you in a way that they are not for Americans. You know, it's, it's, I think it's probably easier for Americans. We have lower taxes. Uh, I think from some of the people I've talked to, we have higher incomes for similar jobs. So that's a pretty powerful combination where you know you're making more money and you're being taxed less on it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, all you can do is deal with the system that you're part. I mean, unless you're willing to relocate. But assuming you want to stay in the Netherlands, and from what I've seen, it's a 
pretty cool place to be. Then you just need to understand the system you're in as well as you can and, and navigate it as best you can. And my Dutch friends that I've had this conversation with so far seem to be reconciled to the fact that it's probably going to take them longer than it would take an American in a similar situation because of the, of the taxes that you have to pay. Yeah. I don't know if that's helpful or not, but there you go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, what lessons about money did your parents teach you? Um, consciously and directly, they didn't teach me anything because it was not something, they were not investors. Um, my dad was self-employed and um, he was a cigarette smoker. You know, back in the day when everybody was, and they didn't appreciate how dangerous that was. And he died at 64 of emphysema, which is a lung disease, and directly related to the cigarettes. And the problem with that, other than dying, 64 is a pretty young age to die. Mm. But emphysema is a really ugly way to die because it kills you very slowly over decades. And so has his health deteriorated, his ability to work deteriorated, and has his ability to work deteriorated, our income dropped. And we went from being comfortably middle class to, to struggling. And that had a profound impact on me that I've only understood in later years. In the, and it's maybe one of the reasons that I don't see money as Going back to the question about, you know, what do you spend your money on? Um, the value of money to me was never about the, the material things we could buy. I never cared about cars or fancier houses or things like that. Money, as I look at it, really, to me represents security. Because when my father's ability to work disappeared and he didn't have anything investors saved, then, you know, we were in... We were in tough situation and I never wanted to be in that situation so I wanted to make sure that I had that was the most important thing the money could buy for me was that that security yeah Christy uh, Christy Shen who just came out with a new book quit like a millionaire she's one of our Chautauqua speakers um, in her Chautauqua speech and in her book she talks about the idea of having FI armor you know where you put it on and it protects you from from the economic slings and arrows of, of the world and it allows you to make bolder choices in in your life in terms of your career and what you want to do and and most people who become FI uh, and quit their jobs don't stop doing they, they don't sit on a beach and drink pina coladas they wind up going on doing other cool things that maybe speak more to their values and their heart and and not infrequently, they wind up actually making more money than they made before. So, yeah. yeah. Would you say Christy also talks about the scarcity mindset? Would you say that that's, that that's maybe what your parents taught you? Or well, probably, probably inadvertently they, nice. they taught me that because, you know, we wound up in a scarcity situation. Yeah. And um, Christy, for those of you who, who aren't familiar with her story, uh, she grew up in rural China. Uh, under the communists and uh, at one point her family was living on 44 cents a day and and uh, you know their big worry so I, I compare my hard luck story of you know what happened to my father uh, we were worried about his business and and uh, you know I was 
picking up empty uh, pop bottles for the from the side of the road for the deposit. Well, Christie was playing on medical waste dumps, trying to find something to play with, and and their big worry was the communists were going to knock down the door and haul her father off to the labor camp, which actually happened at one point. So, uh, yeah, she definitely has a scarcity mindset, but she talks about how it 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 created a value, uh, it, it created appreciation in her for the value of money. Mm. And I think sometimes, and even in the FI community, I'm beginning to see this, people uh, people who write in the FI community, there's a, there's a, a thread I'm beginning to see that is almost denigrating the value of money. Mm. And it's like, well, you know, the money part of it's not important. The, you know, the important thing is living the right life, blah, blah, blah. And, and I cringe a little bit because, yeah, the goal is not to have as, as much money as possible when you die. The goal is to have a wonderful, happy life. But if you start believing that money is not a useful tool in pursuing a wonderful, happy life, I think you're setting yourself up for pretty hard times. You want to respect the money. Yeah, I think it, I think it deserves. As, as Christy says, it's worth bleeding for. Yeah, but not worth and, dying and for. And she has, and not, but not worth dying for. Yeah. Because uh, then, then the game's over. Yeah. <laughs> After discovering uh, index investing, how did you manage to stick to the path since there weren't a lot of role model uh, index invest investors back then? Ah, well, <laughs> that was easy because I resisted indexing for so long. So yeah. um, there's a great irony that's not lost on me. I started investing in 1975 told you how old I am. <laughs> and 1975 happens to be the year that Jack Bogle brought out the very first index fund, an S&P 500 fund. I had no idea that that had happened. I, you know, if I'd known and if I'd been smart enough to embrace it initially, you know, I'd be further ahead and the path would have been a lot easier, but I didn't know. And I didn't know until for about 10 years. So about 19, around 1985, I first learned about index funds. And again, I was a stock picker, and I was looking for stock pickers who ran actively managed funds, and that's how I thought the game was played and won, and I had some success in doing it. And so this idea of indexing comes at me, and, and it just is so counterintuitive that I refuse to accept it. And that's one of the reasons when I hear people arguing against it now, it's kind of amusing to me because it's my own voice I hear in my head, right? Because I'm all the arguments I hear in the making were arguments that I had made and made for a decade or more. I mean, 10, 15 years, I argued mostly with myself against this idea of indexing. Because you look at it and you say, well, how, how can this possibly, how can indexing possibly be better hmm. if, if I can just avoid the bad companies, I'll do better, right? Or if I can just pick out, you know, the better companies, I'll be better. And that just seems so reasonable and logical. And if you're a stock picker like I was, and every now and again you get one, there's nothing more intoxicating, well, at least with your clothes on, than, than watching a stock you picked rise. And, and uh, um, so I just resisted it for a long time. And by the time that it finally sunk in, how much more powerful it was, how much more effective it was, then sticking to the path was, I guess because I'd resisted it for so long, mm -hmm. 
that once I finally accepted it, sticking to the path right. was just it's been a no-brainer. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Beautiful. Yeah. How do you and Jane talk about money and investing, and what kind of money and <laughs> investing talk strategy would you advise couples <laughs> who have just discovered the fire movement? No comment. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> so, so Jane uh, has has no real interest in investing, and. Uh, uh, she's always been very frugal and very thrifty and, and very uh, effective at spending money. So the way we've divided uh, our financial household is uh, I invest, I do the investing and she does the spending. And, uh, and that works really well. Uh, but we do talk about it because I think one of the mistakes that couples, and I think that's pretty typical in a lot of couples, that there's one person who's really into the investing side of it and another one not so much. And uh, about four years ago I had a very good friend of mine die very suddenly. And uh, he was younger than I am, lean, I mean if you looked at Joe and you looked at me and you said I was going to live him, I mean I would have taken that bet. Um, but we none of us know. And Joe had he had a great marriage, it was his wife Debbie, uh, but she had no interest in the investing and Joe handled it all and when he died she had no idea what they had. I mean, I remember she said to me, I, Jim, I don't even know if I can stay in the house. I just, I have no idea. We never talked about this. I think that's a terrible thing uh, to do. I think, you know, my advice would be make sure that the that the spouse who doesn't deal with the investing, knows what you're doing. So Jane and I talk at least once a year about, and of course our, my, our investments don't change much. We, you know, we hold index funds, so but we still talk about it. She's not terribly interested, but she knows it's important. She knows everything we have. She knows why we own it. She knows where it is. Uh, and most importantly, and this is one of the other beauties I think of of the simple path that, that I embrace and that I talk about is that if I die or when I die she doesn't have to do anything. She doesn't have to make a single change. Uh, whereas if I were still fooling around with individual stocks, which I have that disease and sometimes it's tempting, <laughs> but one of the reasons I don't do it anymore in addition to the fact that it's financially not a real smart thing to do is that she'd wind up with two, three, four, six stocks and like, what do I do with these things? And whereas I would have been thinking about what to do with them, and you know, I don't want that to be a burden. So, yeah, there you go. So talk to each other. Make sure that who, whoever is not doing the investing knows why you're invested, where you are, and where that stuff is, and how to access it. And, and, yeah. uh, and again, I don't know how it is in the Netherlands, but in the U.S., um, you know, everything with, in this internet age we, we live in, there is no such thing as privacy. So uh, if you die and your spouse inherits uh, any significant amount of money, they're going to be a target. I mean, make no mistake, they will be a target for uh, charlatans and thieves. And the simpler it is, and so Jane knows she doesn't have to do anything. No matter who comes at her saying, oh, you know, let me help you with your finances. She doesn't need it. 
this is where you should invest. She knows that she's exactly where she should be already. So to the extent you can do that for your spouse, if you're the one handling the investments, that would be my advice. Great. Yeah. Uh, do you expect global trends like climate change to affect the stock market? Should, you, should an investor anticipate on these trends? And if yes, how? Wow, that's a big question. Mm. <laughs> it might be a little bit above my pay grade. Um, so global warming, I think, um, first of all, I, I, I think it's a real thing. I think mm. it's a real concern. Oh, not every American thinks that, so. <laughs> well, not, and not just Americans, not everybody mm. agrees with that. No. But, but I, I mean, I think the scientific evidence is yeah. pretty clear. I think uh, it's a little bit less clear as to exactly what that means and what the timetable is like. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think human beings are going to change their basic behavior. So I think if, if there is going to be a solution to climate change, it's going to come out of, it's going to be some sort of technological innovation. It will frankly come out of business. It will be some capitalist creating a new idea, a new product, a new procedure, a new way of doing things, or more likely multiple ways of doing things to, to deal with energy more effectively, to deal with plastic waste more effectively. Um, and I think those will be economic opportunities for investors. When I talk about the index being self-cleansing, whenever there's you know, right now the index is loaded with technology companies that didn't exist 25 years ago. Um, that's a good thing. I mean, that means that anytime there's something new coming on that is successful, if you own the index, you own that. So I think to the extent that climate change is a solvable problem, that's the way it will be solved. Mm -hmm. And I think that investors will benefit from mm -hmm. that. Okay. And if it's not a sol solvable problem, then it probably won't matter where we're invested. <laughs> I mean, literally, if it's, yeah. a, if it's an earth-ending, a civilization-ending kind yeah. of thing, if we really have gone over the edge, as some people believe, yeah. I don't happen to think that's the case. I hope it's not. Mm -hmm. But then it won't matter where you're invested. Yeah. Just like, you know, there are a lot of things that fall into that, yeah. that category, yeah. you know. I mean, if we start hurling nuclear bombs at each other, then, you know, yeah. it's probably not going to matter where you're invested. No. So, yeah, if the world ends, then, yeah, the simple path to wealth isn't going to help. No. <laughs> <laughs> My last uh, question, uh, which topics are a waste of time to think about when pursuing fire? Well, I think, you know, world-ending events are mm. kind of a waste of time to think about in terms of pursuing fire. I mean, you have to, you have to fundamentally, it seems to me, be an optimist. You, know, you have to believe that we do have a future. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, as a world economy, uh, you know, just looking at VTSAX, which is invest in the United States, uh, you know, I tell my American readers, you know, you have to believe that the United States is going to continue and going to continue to be innovative and prosperous and, and you know, the United States has a lot of problems. but. We've always had a lot of problems that we've muddled through, and if you're investing in Europe, you have to fundamentally believe that for all the problems that you might be facing, that there is an entrepreneurial, energetic spirit that will surmount those problems 
and that they'll probably do it by people going out and creating businesses and solutions and that as an investor you'll benefit from that. And as I say, the day that I'm wrong about that, it really won't matter what you're invested in no. because civilization grinds to a halt and the game's over. So for any investment strategy, it seems to me that, that the fundamental belief is that we have a, a future as a, you know, as a country and as, a, as civilizations. And if you really don't believe that, then you ought to be stocking a bunker somewhere nice. with, with guns and ammunition and canned goods. Yeah. I mean, seriously, yeah. I mean, if, if, that's, if, your, if your belief is really that we're, we're on the verge of Armageddon, then, then yeah, you're probably, there's no investment that makes sense for you other than, than guns and bullets. Right, yeah. I mean, even, you know, people say, well, I'll invest in gold. Well. I have guns and bullets, I'm going to have your gold. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, guns and bullets if you yeah. feel that the world's about to end. Great. Thank you. Okay, any questions from the audience? Sort of maybe a too personal one. Sure. Um, <laughs> I might not answer it, but, but you're welcome to, yeah. to ask. <laughs> um, because you do have a daughter. I do. And, um, so you were uh, saying that your lifestyle is not all that um, luxurious and like lavish. Uh, but for example, going to um, university in the U.S. is very expensive. Right. So how did you? Ha how are you handling that? Oh, well, first of all, it's handled because she's 27 and, and out yes, of university. Yes. Um, yeah, so that's, uh, um, so I had always said to Jessica that her job, that actually kind of a funny story in answering that question, her job was to get into the best school she could and my job was to figure out how to pay for it <laughs> and that I would pay for, and not everybody agrees with this, by the way, a lot of people think, you know, that, that they want their kids to pay their own way through. I paid my own way through, but but it was something I wanted for my kid that that I could afford to pay for it, and that I would pay for the basic room board tuition. If she wanted anything above that, spending money, clothes, all that, she had to work, which she did do. So when she was looking at colleges, um, she narrowed it down to two. Uh, one was the University of Rhode Island, and the other was New York University. And the uh, University of Rhode Island is a state school, which are less expensive in the U.S. And at the time, that was $40,000 a year. But they were going to give her a $15,000 a year scholarship. So that brought it down to $25,000 a year. W would have been out of dad's pocket. NYU was $60,000 a year. And they were going to give her nothing. They were going to give her, yeah, we're going to let you come. That's what we're going to give you, right? And Jessica was on, and I had always said, you know, you get into the best school you can, I'll pay for it. And she was really on the fence trying to figure out which one she had, because she really liked the University of Rhode Island, but she really liked the idea of being in New York and NYU and back and forth. And she just could not make up her mind. And I am biting my tongue. I am biting my tongue. And finally I said to her, well, Jessica, if you are really that undecided, there is a tiebreaker. <laughs> and that's that the one is far less expensive and that she went to the University of Red Island. So, yeah. Any other questions? But, yeah, so you could have stories. You could, uh, you were able to help. We were able right? to pay for it, yeah. I think for parents it's... 
it's hard. A question, like you're yeah. trying to get your independence and maybe retire early, but then you also have children. How are you dealing with paying yeah. stuff for them? Because I, I think as a parent, yeah. you would want to do what you can do. Right, and we, we also had the advantage that, that uh, uh, we were financially independent when she was born. So, you know, we, we had Jessica late in life, and uh, uh, so we were, we, were in, we were very financially secure in a way that, you know, most people have their children younger, and so their children are going to college at a time when they're less financially, of course, most people are not on this FI path either, so inherently they're less financially secure. And that was eye-opening, by the way, for Jessica when she went to college, because in the U.S., the solution to this is to borrow money, mm -hmm. and it's it's criminal in my mind the way the banks and the universities have conspired to drive up the cost of a university education, and then to give these kids these loans that they don't really understand the burden they're taking on, and suddenly they graduate with a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars in debt. And you know you're dealing with 18-year-olds who are being asked to make this decision, and frequently their parents who are older but not economically wiser. And so Jessica saw a lot of her friends taking on huge amounts of debt, and I think that's one of the things that, that was one of the tipping points for her in appreciating this whole FI thing that her parents were on. That you know she began to recognize that oh, yeah, maybe maybe mom and dad are doing something that I should pay attention to because I'm going to graduate and I don't own a dime and I don't have too many friends who are going to be able to do that. So, yeah. Yes, sir. Well, in a bit of a length of that, so uh, in your experience and based on your exposure to uh, young parents, um, <laughs> what a couple of habits or things do you see that parents do with children according with their money, uh, handling money, that you would advise against? What sort of bad things do you see happening with parenting? Are we talking about FI parents or just parents in general? <laughs> Not in general. Not in general. Just, just, uh, just teaching your kids on uh, how to handle money. Well, in general, most people are goofs with their money. <laughs> and so, you know, you're just setting a bad example for your kids just by virtue of what you're doing. And I'm, yeah, I mean, most people just are, they're, they're idiots. And I, I don't know what to say to them. I mean, because if you're out uh, living paycheck to paycheck, if you're going into debt to buy something to, because your neighbor bought something, then, you know, your kid's going to grow up with, with all the wrong lessons. And, and, you know, that's a, and that's one of the reasons most people are, and then we have, you know, in the, in the, um, in the societies we live in, in the U.S., and I think it's true in Europe, there's just, and this is not a conspiracy, but companies are trying to sell as much of their products as they can, so they're spending a lot of money to persuade us and our children to buy stuff. And sometimes people say, well, gee, you know, this whole FI thing is going to take over the world because it's so cool, and it's, you know, what I write about and what every other blogger in this space writes about all around the world is a tiny little drop in against an ocean of, of commercial messages. Um, so I, yeah, I'm I'm kind of pessimistic. I think 
for FI parents, for people who, who have their financial house in, in better order. Uh, the mistake I made is I probably, because I think it's so important, I probably pushed it too hard too soon with Jessica, and I turned her off to it. Uh, fortunately, she's come around now and she's accepted it. And by the way, so the whole reason my blog, I started my blog, was to archive information that would be available to her. And I had no idea that I would, it was just an archive. I had no idea I would ever develop an audience. I, if you told me in, in uh, 2011 when I started this thing that in 2019 I'd be sitting in Amsterdam <laughs> talking to a group of Dutch people about investing, I would, you're out of your mind. That's never going to happen. Uh, and yet, it, so it's been this incredible experience for me. I mean, I. You know, it led to the blog, which has been successful, and which now makes money, by the way. And I published my book, which has been successful, and I do these Chautauquas, which have been successful. And my daughter is very fond of saying to me, you know, Dad, if I'd listened to you, you wouldn't have any of that. It's, it, it's only because I didn't pay any attention to you that you have any of this now today. And, of course, she's right. So, I don't know. Maybe you should push them harder, and then you'll start blogs, and you'll have a great life. I don't know if that was at all useful, but there you go. <laughs> yes, sir. All right, so I'm invested in, uh, well, World Index Funds. Uh -huh. And, um, well, the past years has been, have been great. Um, no need to worry, no need to change anything. Um, there are times when the market's not doing so great. Mm -hmm. And I'm a bit worried about, you know, the mindset when you're going down and see your, like, investments fall 20, 30%. And um, I would think that you've been through a couple of bad times. Mm -hmm. And if you would have any tips on, you know, the med, uh, on, on, on the mindset going into a bad time. That's, that's a great question. And um, one of the things that I wrestle with is, you, first of all, you, you, you just have to learn to stay the course during the bad times. And what I wrestle with is that something that people can learn by reading about it, by my telling them in my book and my blog, or do you have to live through it? To to so, for instance, in 1987, uh, and I'd been investing for a long time by 1987, so I knew the right thing to do. In 1987, they had Black Monday. Uh, I think looking around the room, most of you are probably too young to to have been investing in those days to remember that. But Black Monday in the U.S., the market dropped almost 25% in one day. Biggest drop in history, bigger than anything in the Great Depression. Uh, there were no, uh, there was no internet, you know, computers were, were relatively new. We had stockbrokers. Uh, I'd been working all day. I hadn't seen any news. and I. I just happened randomly to call my stockbroker that afternoon, and I said, "Hey, Wayne, how you doing?" <laughs> There's this silence on the line, and he said, you're kidding, right? And I said, "No, why?" He said, "You don't know." And I said, "No, no, what don't I know?" And he said, "Well, the market just—you know—the market was closed by then." He said, "People have been screaming at me all day," and and. Um, then the market continued to drift lower over the next several months, and I knew what the right thing to do was, right? 
but about three or four months in, and this happened in September, I think, October, something like that. About three or four months in is that, you know, you had this huge drop and then it just kept drifting lower and lower. Anyway, I lost my nerve and I sold. And if I didn't sell at the exact bottom, it was close enough not to have mattered because the moment, it's like the market was waiting for me to sell. <laughs> and then it turned around and of course, as the market always does after any drop until Armageddon, it, it just marched past where it had been and, and with me sitting on the sidelines and, and uh, I finally I got back in having locked in my losses and paying a higher price to get back in. And that's what it took for me to, to never make that mistake again. So when we had the much worse situation in, in 07, 08, 09, which was, you know, never had the, as big a one day drop, but overall it was longer and much uglier. Uh, and I confess, I was, I was nervous. Um, but I think it was because of that 87 experience that I stayed the course. And I, I try to tell people that if you haven't lived through it, it's, it's really hard to imagine how ugly it, it is. Because we tend to look at it and we tend to say, oh, well, in 19, uh, uh, in, in 2007 and 8, you know, the market dropped by about half. And I could tolerate that, but what you don't realize is that, or what people don't think about is in, in March of 2009, which is when the market hit absolute bottom, um, and it had been cut just about in half, nobody knew at the time that was the bottom. And all the smart people in investing that I knew were all predicting it was going to go much lower. I mean, they were saying it was going to go down another two-thirds. Right? Nobody was saying we're at the bottom. Nobody was taking any comfort in the level that turned out to be the bottom. And so you think about it, let's make the math easy. Let's suppose that you have uh, 1.2 million euros invested and it gets cut in half and now you have 600,000 euros and you're in March of, of 09 and everybody you know that you respect in, in the investment world is saying they expect it to go down by two-thirds more, that you're going to have 200,000 euros by the time the dust settles? Are you going to stay the course then? Because that's really what you have to ask yourself. And of course the answer is that you have to, and fortunately I did. But I think I, I only did, and this is just me and my psychology, and hopefully, it's, hopefully other people are smarter than me and don't have to learn it the hard way, but I think the 87 experience is what kept me holding on because at that point I knew, you know, either this is going to turn around, even if it goes down another two-thirds, at some point it's going to turn around and it's going to set new highs or the economy is really over and then it doesn't matter what I do. So, yeah, so it's, it's a question I wrestle with a lot because when I've been writing, since I've been writing my blog, and I write a lot about you have to expect market drops. Well, the market's almost never dropped since I've, I started writing in 2011 and, you know, I, I mean, we had a, a drop of about 20% in December and I was like, good, finally, and then it was over. I mean, it was over like in a couple of weeks. I mean, that's not a, I mean, technically it's a bear market because it dropped 20%, but how bad, I mean, it was over in two weeks. So I, you know, I 
I, I think and that's another reason I don't think FI is going to take over the world because I think when we the next time we have a major drop that lasts for some period of time, I think a lot of people will will lose faith and give up and they'll as they do after every market plunge, people say, I'm never investing in the stock market again. That's nuts. You know, and I think that'll that'll happen. And I you know, I hope that my writing helps people get through it and stay the and I say to people you know, unless you are absolutely sure you're going to stay the course, don't follow my advice. Because if you if you cut and run when the market drops, if you panic and sell when the market drops, my advice will leave you bleeding by the side of the road. You know, it will hurt you. So the very first thing, if you're reading my blog or my book, the very first thing you have to reconcile in your own mind is that when the market drops and send Someday will, you know. I have no idea when, as we talked about earlier in the question. It could be happening right now, for all I know. It could be 20 years from now. I mean, this might be the longest bull. I, nobody knows. But at some point, it'll happen. And unless you're absolutely sure that you're going to stay the course, then you should not be invested in stocks, and you certainly shouldn't be following my path. And in fact, last fall, uh, I met a guy who has an entirely different. Uh, he invests only in cash, uh, and you know I, I have a guest post from him. He calls it the warm method, which is wasting asset. I forget, but it, but fundamentally he he doesn't hold stocks at all. He just holds cash, and with the idea that he has enough cash to last until he dies. Not my investment approach, but but if when push comes to shove, if somebody's following my approach. They're following his approach, and the market plunges, and they panic and sell out of my approach. They would have been better off. I mean, if they stay the course with my approach, you'll be much better off. But anyway, so yeah, I mean, that's that's the key thing you have to reconcile in your own head: is will you stay the course? And I think you know, only you can figure it out, and I'm not sure that any of us really know until we go through it. So, anyway, stay the course. <laughs> my advice. Uh, we have time for two more questions. Um, I have a question about, um, like I, I read your blog post about uh, your advice on dollar cost averaging. Yes. Um, I assume that's more if you have like a huge amount of money and what to do with it. But they have been playing with the thought of value cost averaging, where you try to keep the same value. Um, every time you invest, because like, uh, I, I agree with the fact that dollar cost averaging isn't the best uh, thing to do if you have a huge sum of money. But most of us, we invest with our salary, which comes right. every uh, time period. And, well, what do you think about value cost averaging? And uh, you know, what's your advice on how to pick that up? Well, I, so first of all, I, like you say, most people who are accumulating wealth are working and they're investing periodically just because they're investing as the money comes. And that is a form of dollar cost averaging and there's, there's sort of no way around that. And there is a value to it in that when the market drops, you, you get to pick up shit. So if the market plunges tomorrow, um, one of the things that I, that, that I would say is if you're building your wealth, 
just continue doing what you're doing. And if anything, you might want to trim your lifestyle so you can put even more money in and pick up those shares that are at bargain rates. And if you're living on your wealth, if you're following my approach, you have bonds. And when you readjust your allocation, you're taking advantage of those lower prices. I think that's all you need to do. I think, you know, value cost averaging gets just a little bit too fancy for my tastes, but almost everything does. You know, I, I, I keep things very, very simple. And, you know, if, if you want to tinker, then, you know, tinker away. But um, I, I would suggest that if, if anything that you tinker with, if it, if it really worked consistently, the crowd would already be on it. And the fact the crowd would be on it would take away the value that it had. Um, a more, so I'm not, I'm not adamantly opposed to what you described. One of the things that I am more adamantly opposed to along those lines is people who talk about tracking P-E ratios as a measure of whether stocks are about to fall if they're too high, or particularly Schiller P-E ratios. First of all, there's no predictive value in those. I mean, there's just no pattern that shows they predict when the market's going to fall. Um, and if there was, then the market wouldn't get that high to begin with because everybody would know that that was a signal that was useful and they'd shift away. So, you know, there's very little that we can know that that it's going to be useful that the rest of the market doesn't know. And by virtue of knowing it, the value immediately gets drained away, if that makes sense. Yeah. So we talked a little bit I was, about... I was waiting for your yeah, question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we talked a little bit about, uh, a bit about uh, climate change. Uh -huh. um, I am a person who tries to live more sustainable, so... Uh, and I also would like to promote companies who do better for humans, animals, and for the planet. But uh, now I am investing in uh, Vanguard World Stock Market. Uh, I'm also investing in the bad companies, like uh, uh, who don't have like uh, mindfulness for uh, all those right. categories. So what would you advise to me as a person who's trying to live more sustainable and wants to promote better companies? So um, I also, I invest in VTSAX, which while it's not the world it invests in everything, and it, it doesn't try to pick and choose companies. Uh, so obviously I'm not uh, a fan of what, what is called in the U.S. ethical investing. Uh, hopefully it's not because I'm unethical. Um, but the problems I see with it are, first of all, what makes a bad company a bad company is in the eye of the beholder to a large extent. You know, because of your environmental interests, you know, that colors how you see them. Uh, if you were a Muslim, you would see other, you would see uh, banks, for instance, because uh, Islam prescribes uh, earning money from interest. Uh, so there's a lot of different ways to decide what's ethical. And once you start doing that, you, you now you've moved away from indexing and you're now in the business of actively managing and picking stocks. Now you're not trying to pick them for performance, which is the traditional way. You're picking them based on some other metric. Maybe it, it fits your religious views, maybe it fits your ecological views, 
But by definition, you're now picking and choosing. You're probably going to get a lower return. Uh, you're certainly going to have higher fees because those picking and choosing requires active management, and those people are going to be are going to be charging money. Uh, fund companies are falling all over themselves to offer these kinds of funds because they're very profitable and they know that that people uh, that there's an, there's a market for it. People are interested because people want to live by their ethical guidelines, whatever those are. I mean, whatever yours are and. And um, if that's really what you want to do, as long as you understand the drawbacks, that it's you're probably going to have lower performance and you're definitely going to have higher fees, then that's a very personal choice. My choice, and what I would recommend, is that that you you sw swallow the distaste you have for the companies that are in the index that don't meet your values and continue to own the index and then take that lower cost and greater profitability and channel that money into causes that you believe in and I think that will have a more direct benefit and I guarantee you those causes will be happy that you did that as opposed to trying to because I think when you go to an ethical fund I don't think you really change anything you know, I don't think the oil companies that you avoid are going to change their behavior and it's not going to make any difference to them. But if you maximize your investment returns through lower cost and better performance, and then you have more money than maybe you need just to support yourself and you have money to do. That's one of the beautiful things, I think, by, by the way, of, of FI is people who become FI tend to be very generous. When you become FI, you'll become FI sooner, you'll have more money and you'll have money to support uh, organizations that, that are actively working on to make the world a better place in the way you see it. And I think that's the more effect, that's what I do and I think that's simply more effective. Uh, but I share you, I mean, certainly in the index at BTSX, they're my own companies that make me cringe, but that's how I deal with it. One more question. One more question, because we are paying Zoku uh, through drinks as well. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's uh, that's our payment for today. <laughs> so otherwise, uh, so final question. Well, and and and, and publicity. And publicity. Now all, and you, publicity. all you guys know that's about true. what that's cool true. place. Yes. Zoku I have a question. Is. If nobody else has a question, go for it. Uh, I mean, go for it. Okay. Sure. <laughs> well, we could take more than one question. Okay. I mean, I, okay. Okay. Well, I think we could, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Um, first, I want to thank you because with your advice oh, I like on the you. blog, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's it's true. I mean, it's really helpful in getting yeah, on the path to freedom and yeah. getting away from working uh, from nine to five for a boss. So mm -hmm. that's great. And I have two children, and I have a son of eight. And this morning I was calculating with him if you put 40 euros for your Nintendo game <laughs> then it's lost or if we calculate what it's going to do if you yeah. put it away for 10 years so that's yeah. great <laughs> how did that go so over? <laughs> so I think I was doing what you were doing with your daughter uh, but I'm so, you, so you're saying your 8 year old hates me now <laughs> <laughs> blame that guy yeah, right. but I'm, I'm telling them um, both my children that they have to think you can spend your money once and then right. you invest and so I'm trying to put it in their in their heads. 
Um, and I was wondering, because you are writing and telling about your daughter and how she feels about your advice, um, you're telling her to put as much as she can, and now she's 27 right. years old. Is she now seeing the fun of it, because she is doing it by herself, and I mean, is she getting into it, or? Yeah, she definitely, she's getting into it again. Uh, I don't know if, if we talked about this in the Q&A, or it might have been a conversation that we were having before, but Jessica has kind of come to this from a little bit different direction in that she's uh, very environmentally conscious, that's very important to her, and so uh, frugality and uh, sustainable living, which are very good for FI practice because it frees up money to invest, but it, it's also better for the planet, right? The more you reuse things and the more you're careful about what you buy, um, so, yeah, she comes at it from a little bit different direction. She, when she got out of college, she uh, served with AmeriCorps, which is, um, uh, it's a government, in the U.S., it's a government program that, that uh, takes people like her and puts her in low-income areas, and they pay them almost nothing, but, you know, she's basically working to make the community a better place. And then she did the same thing for two years in the Peace Corps, which is the same concept. It's a program in the U.S. and and uh, but it's international. So she was in the Philippines for two years, and part of that experience is is she she lives in those communities. So she lives very uh, cheaply, you know, at a, at a much much lower standard of living than she grew up, and and she learns that the the disconnect between money and happiness. So, you know, she goes to the Philippines, for instance, and meets people who have a tiny fraction of what she grew up with, but who are living very happy, contented lives. And, and I think that's an important thing for, especially first world people to learn, first world children to learn, is that to disconnect what you can buy from happiness, because the two are not connected. And so now that she's in the U.S. and living and working, um, she still lives a very, she's still not making a lot of money, but she lives a very simple life and she's saving half of her income and she makes about $24,000 a year. So, and she's saving half of that. Wow. And so I, I hear people say, you know, I, you know, I only make $50,000, I can't save half of it. Well, you know, when I made $10,000 a year in the beginning of my career, of course, that was more money than with inflation, but you know, so my kids living on half of what she makes, but she's, you know, she had, she's had experiences where she doesn't have a lot of material requirements. So is that? It's a beautiful life lesson yeah, for her yeah. to experience that. Yeah. yeah, I'm hoping my kids will. Yeah, yeah, and, and, it, and you know, it's, it's a challenge for, so for the people in this room, and, you know, you're you're going to wind up being wealthier than most people, and so your parent, your children are going to grow up being the children of wealthy people, and that's a challenge. You know, I when I look at Christy Shen, who we talked about earlier, and I mean, one of the reasons she's as successful as she is is I think one of the reasons that I'm as successful as I am at this stuff is the tragic thing that happened to my father and. You know, you hope that it doesn't take that. And I think my daughter is living proof that, you know, she's taken life. She hasn't had to go through those 
hard times to take these lessons on board. And uh, I don't think you have to embed, of course, by the same token, uh, not everybody who grew up in rural China has gone on to be a millionaire, right? Mm -hmm. And so not everybody who went through my experience has gone on. So, you know, poverty does crush people as often as it inspires them. Uh, just like wealth crushes people, you know, crushes children as often as, as it can be used as a platform going, you know, to, to go further. And uh, one of the things that I've tried to teach Jessica, and I think successfully, I wrote a, a blog post about this late last year, early this year, called Investing for Seven Generations, if any of you happen to read it. But the concept is, I've, I've begun to, to understand at a profound level that the money that we have, Jane and I have, is not our money. We're the custodians of it for future generations. And I've tried to explain to Jessica that at some point this money will come to you. And it's not going to be your money. Now, you will be, well, right? But it's not. It's, you're going to be the custodian of it. You will, you will certainly be allowed to benefit from it to the extent of the 4% rule. But it's not yours to go and squander on, on yachts and, and race cars. It's yours to nurture and, and pass on. And then your responsibility is to teach your kids that it's not their money. They're the, they're the custodians. And if at some point, you don't, and our daughter is not married, she doesn't have children, and I don't know if she will, but if she doesn't, or if she does, and her children decide, if at some point they decide not to have children, then it'll be that generation's responsibility to disperse it in some hopefully useful way for society. And of course, part of it is giving all as we go along. Obviously, dispersing part of it is, is part of the ethic of, of sharing wow. yeah thank you yeah so but it's a challenge raising kids yeah, especially true. especially you know if you're if you're fairly wealthy because you're going to be living in an area where they're going to have a lot of influences yeah. that the arguments I had with my daughter in in the US you can start driving when you're 16 and the campaign she put on to get a car when she <laughs> turned 16 <laughs> I mean, I have to conf confess, my children are spo spoiled little monsters, so, yeah. 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 And now I'm starting to, no, it is different, look, I'm like, no, we have to stop, because otherwise they grow up with, oh, I can have everything I yeah, want. Yeah, right, it's, right. That's not true. Honestly. And you might be able to actually to give them most of everything they yeah. want. But you, So we could have bought our daughter a car when she turned 16, we certainly could have afforded it. Uh, I remember she said to me at one point, because she, I mean, she started a campaign like when she was 14 <laughs> to get a car. So this was an ongoing thing. At one point she said to me, you know, Dad, all my friends are going to get cars. I said, Jessica, that's wonderful. It'll be easy to get rides. <laughs> all of your, what do you need a car for? All of your friends are going to have cars. Yeah. And finally, the, the last conversation we had about it, she you know, she, we went to lunch, and she said, there's something I want to talk to you about, and, okay. and it was the car. And this was, she was about to turn 16, or maybe just turned 16, and she was, she had really done a good job of putting together a presentation about why she should get a car. And I listened very patiently to it, and, and I said to her, you know, Jessica, I have to say, this is, this is wonderful. You make a very persuasive case. But if you really want a, if you really want a car, 
you have made one major strategic mistake. And she got very concerned. She said, well, well what's that? I said, you picked the wrong father. <laughs> as long as I'm your father, you are not getting a car when you're, when you're 16. <laughs> so, anyway. You still have a question? Uh, oh. Go for it. I was, I was wondering, what is, um, does, does the concept of work mean anything to you, or do you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how I should take that. <laughs> we, should have cut the, we should have cut the questions off. <laughs> yeah. I should listen to you. <laughs> I, 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 I'm not sure, how do you mean? <laughs> sure. So, yeah, at some point, uh, as you described earlier, uh, there was this, 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 this point where you had this sort of realization that there wasn't any income. Right. But that you have more money at the end of the year than you started with. Mm -hmm. And at some point, you decided to, to, to stop doing the job that you were Right. But now you're here, you know, you're spreading, you know, you, you did all the, the work of the blog, you're doing that still. So I wonder if, if, if the idea when, when, um, uh, when work no longer became the thing I do to earn money, uh, yeah, I was kind of wondering. Yeah. What, okay. Yeah, I, so well, first of all, I, as, as I said earlier, I, I didn't really make the connection that I didn't have to work ever again. It just didn't occur to me. So I kept working at my, you know, I enjoyed my corporate career. I mean, I, I liked working and I, I had a good career and I enjoyed, for the most part, I didn't enjoy everything about it. I always wanted to have enough money to step away from it anytime I wanted to and I accomplished that fairly young. But I liked working and I liked getting paid. and. Um, so I kept working, and then um, in 2003, I think, I had the, probably the best job that I'd ever had, and because of what happened with 9-11 and the tech crash, and, and, and it was in, in the tech sector at the time, and things fell off the cliff, and we all lost our jobs, and I thought, well, that's just the universe telling me it's time to stop working. And at that point I was comfortable in 2003, which is like 13, 14 years after we actually hit FI, I, we were even further along and I was very comfortable not working for money in a way that I probably wasn't initially. Um, and then a friend of mine in business, you know, it took him three years, but he convinced me to come back and work for him. And uh, so I did that for a while, and then I left that job in 2011. But I liked working, and I, but when I quit that job, I, I had no intention of ever working again. And then this blog kind of has taken off, and uh, and it's been the most satisfying thing I've ever done in my life. You know, writing the book and the blog and doing the Chautauquas, and I get to meet cool people like you guys. It's just it's been awesome. Um, and it, it earns money. The blog didn't earn money to begin with, and I didn't start it with that in mind. I didn't even know that was a possibility. Uh, but I like getting paid, and you know, I think it's worth, you know, people should get paid for their effort. And, and, um, and now it's, I mean, it's in a beautiful 
position because I can work literally exactly how much or as little as I want and whenever I want and so but I think people humans we're pretty hardwired to take satisfaction in working and I think that it's a mistake to I mean maybe for some people everybody's different but by and large I think it's a mistake to assume you're gonna hit FI and quit and do nothing I think that's probably a recipe for uh, pretty unpleasant way to live. Now you might work at something that doesn't pay anything. Uh, the blog didn't pay anything for first, I don't know, three or four years. And you know, as I say, I wasn't, mm -hmm. I didn't care about that because I didn't have to. Um, but you'll probably find something to do that intrigues you. And so, yeah, I think works. We seem, the human animal seems to be hardwired to want to do something productive. And that's going to be a real issue, by the way, if technology uh, begins to eliminate massive numbers of jobs, and even if we manage to restructure the, the economy in a fashion that, you know, we provide people with basic incomes, you know, um, without work, I, I don't think that solves, that might solve the problem of paying the rent and putting food on the table, but what are these people going to do with their, their time? I think that's going to be the at least as big an issue. So. Okay. On that question, <laughs> well, I've got a question. What's that going to lead to? Okay. Well, uh, thank you very much, Jim. Thank you. Thank you. And now the disclaimer: everything you just heard is pure entertainment. No professional advice was given. Before you make any decision, consult your own advisors. Your decisions are your responsibility.